there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Jonathan had managed to make it through choppy waters back to dry land, but his head was still swimming. He was disoriented. And his leg, the pain was agonizing. Every ragged breath, an electric shock through his body. Even back on land, he didn't feel safe. The great white shark had wrapped its razor-sharp teeth around him, and he didn't yet know the extent of the damage. But he knew he was bleeding. He knew his best friend, Sean, had turned ghost white at the sight of his wounds. The crowd pressed in, some of them working to help him, some of them simply calling news organizations, already spreading the word. Stinson Beach, California, had just been the site of a grisly shark attack. Jonathan was fading fast. He heard voices around him, trying to keep him talking, to keep him conscious. It was too difficult. It had taken everything he had to fight off the shark and then swim back to shore with an injured leg. He felt the world drifting away from him. And with each passing second, it looked more and more likely that he wouldn't survive. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. You can find episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Survival for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on Jonathan Catherine, a teenage body surfer who survived an attack by a great white shark off the California coast on August 26, 1998. Last week, Jonathan overcame the shark but his leg was badly mangled. This week, Jonathan's difficult journey continues as he reaches shore, but struggles to survive his injuries. At the water's edge, there was a commotion. Across the beach, tourists were stopping to gawk or pulling out their cell phones and calling friends, media, anyone they could think of to share the big news. Shark attack. Lying in the sand, his badly punctured leg bleeding into the water, Jonathan Catherine found himself feeling a strange kind of embarrassment at the situation. All this trouble just for him? Jonathan was 16 years old and had set out that morning planning to make the most of his last day of summer vacation. A shark attack was the farthest thing from his mind. And now, even in the aftermath, 
It seemed unreal. But Jonathan hadn't realized that Stinson Beach, where he had been surfing, was situated dead center in the so-called Red Triangle, a stretch of California coast that boasts an unusually high concentration of sharks. If he didn't know about the sharks beforehand, he had been rudely awakened by a Great White's shocking attack. Jonathan had run into a few lucky breaks that day. The shark had released him, either realizing that he wasn't a seal or simply hoping that he would bleed out by the time it returned to finish him off. Either way, he had used his brief window of safety to get out of the water as quickly as he could. His second bit of luck arrived in the form of Pat Norton, a lifeguard at Stinson Beach. As Jonathan floated in the ocean, screaming for help to the oblivious beachgoers on shore, Pat noticed him. He immediately recognized Jonathan's situation as urgent. Before even leaving his lifeguard tower, Pat called for a helicopter and paramedics. Then he ran down to the shore, where the crowd was already starting to gather. With some effort, he helped pull Jonathan higher up onto the beach, away from the lapping waves and the stinging salt water. Pat's knowledge of emergency medical procedure was essential to Jonathan's survival that day. He directed onlookers to tie together two boogie boards that served as a makeshift stretcher. Pat and a few others were able to bring Jonathan all the way onto dry land without dragging him through the sand and risking further infection to the open wound. Though they were deviating from a general rule of first aid, if possible, don't move the victim, they were doing so for good reason. With the water continuing to lap over Jonathan, he would be difficult to evaluate and treat. As they set him down, Jonathan saw a familiar face standing over him. Sean, his best friend and body surfing companion, Sean looked sick to his stomach. Jonathan asked him how bad the leg injury was and started to sit up. But Sean covered Jonathan's eyes, refusing to let him look. His next words chilled Jonathan to his core. He said, Jonathan, I can see the bone in your leg. Jonathan rested his head again, deciding to follow Sean's advice and avoid looking at the injury. A moment later, Sean got up and staggered over to a nearby log, where he sat down, head in his hands, looking pale. An ambulance soon arrived, and paramedics ran across the beach to help. One paramedic began to cut through Jonathan's wetsuit. Jonathan, out of his senses, tried to stop them, saying he might want to use it again. Wasn't there any way they could preserve it? They continued cutting anyway, needing better access to his wounds. It was small comfort when one medic told him that shark experts would likely be able to use his suit for data purposes. Then they began asking Jonathan routine questions, his age, his place of birth, his emergency contact. Jonathan tried to wave them off by pointing to Sean, telling them he could give them all that information, but they insisted it had to be Jonathan. They were trying to keep him conscious. This is an oft-used technique in cases of serious injury. Keeping the patient awake has a number of benefits. 
Most basically, it allows doctors and paramedics the simple assurance that the injured is still alive and able to tell them if pain increases or decreases. It can help indicate if the patient is losing cognitive function, especially in the case of severe blood loss like Jonathan was experiencing. And in a chilly environment like the Northern California coast that day, staying awake helps keep blood flowing and in turn keeps the victim warmer helping to ensure their survival. Jonathan needed all the help he could get to stay awake. Even though he was naked on the beach, surrounded by strangers, the severe pain and blood loss had him fading fast. He wondered if anyone had called his mother. Some part of him hoped they hadn't. He didn't want her to worry. He thought about the ocean, where he'd once felt safe. Jonathan now felt a kind of betrayal. He had put himself in the ocean's hands and it had hurt him. The paramedics applied pressure to Jonathan's leg in an attempt to slow the bleeding. This technique works by slowing the flow of blood from a wound, causing the platelets to stick together and begin clotting. Essentially, Applying pressure to an open wound jumpstarts the process of forming a scab and limits the loss of blood to the victim. They also tried to strap his leg to the stretcher, a common procedure in the case of broken bones, in order to keep it from moving about and exacerbating the damage. But Jonathan stopped them. The pain was absolutely unbearable. He asked if they could avoid tightening the straps around his leg, and they agreed. He became aware of sand pelting him in the face and a rush of air coming at him. Then he heard the sound. It was a helicopter, the one Pat had called 20 minutes ago. The helicopter landed on the beach near Jonathan and the paramedics strapped him to a real stretcher. Then they lifted him into the passenger bay of the chopper next to a nurse checking his vital signs. Jonathan was bordering on delirium now. The first responders had managed to staunch the flow of blood, but he'd still lost too much, and he couldn't stay conscious any longer. As he faded in and out, he mumbled to the nurse, asking her if she thought he would be able to make his first day of school tomorrow. The nurse smiled gently and told him they would worry about that later, after they had patched him. Jonathan still had no real sense of how bad his wound was, other than what Sean had told him. The pilot announced they were headed for the John Muir Trauma Center, and Jonathan immediately wondered if his insurance would cover him there. The pilot reminded him the first focus was on getting him the best care possible. Everything else could wait. With the nurse keeping him occupied with light conversation, and the gentle rocking of the helicopter, Jonathan felt himself being lulled to sleep. All around him, the world darkened bit by bit. Slowly, he slipped under into a deep unconsciousness. With a jolt, Jonathan came to, and the searing pain in his leg quickly returned. The helicopter had made a hard landing at the hospital, and the paramedics were already unloading him. As they reached his room in the hospital, a nurse gave Jonathan a phone. She said, it's your mother, she wants to talk to you. Still fading fast, 
Jonathan told his mom that he was okay, but that he wanted to see her and the rest of the family. She assured him they'd be there as soon as possible. Jonathan was still losing blood quickly, and the doctors decided not to wait another moment. They wheeled him into surgery and put him under. As the world darkened around Jonathan, the doctors got to work. It was time to do everything they could to save his life. Next, Jonathan clings to life in the operating theater. Now, back to our story. 16-year-old Jonathan Catherine had overcome so much in so little time. A shark attack that could have easily killed him. A long swim back to shore and a bumpy helicopter ride to the hospital. But now came the most difficult moment of all, his surgery. He was put under anesthesia and slept through it. But it was, by the doctor's accounts, a harrowing eight-hour battle between life and death. Jonathan had lost significant amounts of blood. The holes in his leg formed almost a perfect imprint of the jaws of the shark that had bitten him. Doctors flushed out his wounds with a pressurized water spray multiple times to ensure that no bacteria from the shark's mouth remained, nor any grains of sand or other ocean detritus that could cause an infection later on. It was a grueling process. A surgery that had been expected to take just a couple of hours instead stretched across the entire evening as the surgeons fought to keep him from succumbing to blood loss. With intricate, delicate movements, doctors had to stitch together tiny veins and muscles that had been ripped apart by the serrated teeth of the shark. They were unable, however, to replace many sections of leg muscle that the great white had taken with it. This would no doubt limit Jonathan's recovery prospects. He might never fully regain his ability to walk, but that was secondary. The focus, for now, was simply on keeping him alive and attempting to repair the damage. And in the end, they succeeded. They had stopped the bleeding and stitched the wound with as many as 600 stitches and staples, which formed gruesome black trails across his leg where the shark's teeth had scored deep cuts into the flesh, scars that would never heal. The shark's bite had stopped just one centimeter short of his femoral artery, a mere centimeter. That was the difference between surviving long enough to swim back to shore and bleeding out in the ocean with no hope of making it. It also left him with enough blood to survive once the doctors had started working on him. That and the paramedics' speedy application of pressure to the wound. It was a strange confluence of different, disparate actions that saved Jonathan's life that night. After hours of careful work by the doctors, Jonathan awoke. It was around midnight on the day of his attack. In a daze, he appraised his surroundings. His father was speaking to him, saying, Jonathan, you're at the hospital. Jonathan's eyes opened a little wider, and he saw, surrounding him, his family. His mother, his father, and his two younger brothers, Michael and Eric. They hugged him tightly, glad to have their older brother back again. 
but Jonathan was, in many ways, only at the beginning of his journey. From the moment he entered the hospital, reporters had been gathering outside the door, eager to hear word about his condition. Even when they were told that he had survived and was recovering, everyone clamored for an interview with the shark victim. At first, Jonathan hung back, wary of engaging with the media. He was still weak, tired, dehydrated, and doing everything he could to recover. But one TV report changed his mind. A news segment described his trip back to shore inaccurately, claiming that a friend had helped him swim back to the beach. But Jonathan knew he had made it to the beach entirely on his own. His accomplishment had been incredible, and now they were going to take it from him, unless he spoke up first. The next day, Thursday, August 27th, was supposed to be Jonathan's first day back at school. Instead, less than 24 hours after the attack, he stood before a gaggle of journalists recounting the battle with the shark and his amazing escape in his own words. While he set the record straight, the press conference didn't do much to satisfy the media's curiosity. This was a big story, a shark attack, Stinson Beach's first ever, with a survivor able to talk details. They weren't going to let it go easily. Day in and day out, journalists called for Jonathan to the point where his little brother, Michael, began fielding them and deciding which ones were worth passing on. Jonathan had his own little press agent right there in the hospital room. Right from the start, Jonathan was discerning about the kind of outlets he would grant interviews to. There was a disturbing undertone in many of the journalists' words. They wanted to paint sharks as the enemy and Jonathan as the helpless victim. But even just a day after his attack, Jonathan thought his portrayal was unfair. It reeked of sensationalized reporting. He had just been attacked by a shark, but he didn't feel animosity toward it. And the reporter's eagerness to manufacture that animosity made him wary. Any journalist who seemed intent on vilifying sharks was dismissed out of hand. He kept his focus on the scientific outlets, the ones that showed an interest in portraying the facts without sensationalizing them. His brother Michael was also screening the calls for the simple reason that Jonathan needed some separation from the media frenzy. He was, at the time, undergoing intense physical therapy to regain use of his leg, something his doctors warned him might not ever be fully possible. But Jonathan was persistent. He took to the task of therapy as eagerly as he had taken to surfing, pushing himself through pain and exhaustion. Every day, he would make a slow, excruciating walk down the hall, supported by crutches and a heavy belt. A nurse held the other end of the belt, keeping him from falling over. The hard work quickly paid off. After only a week, Doctors agreed that his progress was amazing and released him to go home. Jonathan and his family returned to the beach relatively soon after, but for a long time, Jonathan wouldn't go in the water. He still remembered the ocean's betrayal, and he found it difficult to forgive and forget. 
As his brothers frolicked in the water, he would watch from a beach towel safely laid out on dry land. And of course, the family didn't go back to Stinson Beach. That beach now sported prominent signs warding off would-be surfers. It read, Caution, Great White Sharks Live in These Waters. But even the scary-looking signs couldn't keep intrepid wave catchers out of the water, any more than the stories of sharks in the Red Triangle had kept away Jonathan. As it happened, even Jonathan was drawn back to the Red Triangle, to the very location where he had encountered the shark. One morning, a few months after the attack, Jonathan found himself where he thought he would never set foot again. Stinson Beach. The crew of Dateline NBC had convinced him that footage of him at the infamous spot would make for a great interview, and he agreed to the request. His leg was still in a brace from the attack, but he capably answered the reporter's questions about his experience and how it changed his outlook on life. It had, of course, made him appreciate things more, his family, the mundane aspects of living, the things he had taken for granted. The reporter asked if he would ever go back into the ocean. Jonathan answered him by simply saying, I guess I don't know yet. I definitely want to. But after answering, he took a long look at the water, spreading out toward the horizon line, and felt something stir inside him. It was a kind of desire, the urge to be out there on the board, once again, a small piece of something unimaginably large. His ambivalent answer hid a truth he was just now realizing. He was ready to go back out onto the ocean. For his 17th birthday that year, Jonathan's little brothers got him aboard to replace the shark-bitten, pockmarked one that he'd been using the day of the incident. For the first few months, he didn't dare get deeper than ankle-high water, and every sojourn further sent chills up his spine. Jonathan was determined to overcome his fear, though. After all, hadn't he already faced the worst he could and survived? Little by little, in a process that ultimately took years, Jonathan began to go further out into the ocean, first sticking to the shallow water by the beach, and then slowly pushing himself into deeper territory. But he couldn't lie, it was terrifying. While he was able to get into the water again, he still couldn't bring himself to actually surf. That required paddling out over a hundred feet from the shore and right back into the territory where he had been attacked. As we've said, Jonathan didn't think of the Great White as a monster or a killer. But that doesn't mean it didn't hold a certain power over him. The Dateline NBC reporter had asked him how he felt toward the shark now, as had just about everyone he met, journalist or otherwise. They all seemed to expect anger or rage in his response. But it was around this time that Jonathan realized he needed to replace his fear with curiosity so that he could teach himself and others about these vilified ocean predators. He wasn't far into his recovery before he began placing calls to scientists and studying up on the great white shark. Eventually, 
he came into contact with shark expert Dr. John McCosker. The scientist gave Jonathan a tour through the Steinhardt Aquarium in San Francisco, taking him into the archives and showing him preserved sharks and other marine life. By the end of the trip, Jonathan felt no animosity toward his attacker. Rather, he saw the creature as merely a curious, confused fish, and he recognized that he had wandered into the animal's home, not the other way around. Jonathan came to understand that the shark attack hadn't been personal. The great white had likely rammed into him thinking he was a seal. The shape of a surfboard viewed from below looks a lot like the silhouette of a seal. The shark was simply looking for food, and Jonathan was in the wrong place. Nothing more than that. Surely nothing to hold a grudge over. With help from Dr. McCosker, Jonathan learned about the different kinds of sharks, including ones that attack humans much more frequently than great whites. Both bull and tiger sharks are far more likely to attack humans and may even return for a second meal. By comparison, the great white often leaves humans alone as soon as they realize they're not dealing with a seal. Jonathan obsessively absorbed stats about shark attacks and their frequency, or more accurately, their rarity. California, despite being the home of the Red Triangle, averages one or two shark attacks per year. Statistically, a person is more likely to die from being crushed by a vending machine than from a shark attack, and probably more likely to encounter a vending machine in the wild, too. All of this research only amplified Jonathan's feelings about his attack, that the great white shark, while the apex predator of the ocean, was not necessarily a predator to him. It was just a wayward fish looking for dinner. Only a few months into his recovery, Jonathan was already advocating for shark preservation, attempting to impress upon the public just how rare shark attacks really are. He would highlight the fact that humans are a much greater threat to sharks than vice versa. Following the success of movies like Jaws, shark species were frequently hunted to near extinction with little outcry from the general populace. Jonathan dedicated the rest of his life to activism and advocacy, focusing on conflict resolution and the value of empathy. He credited this worldview to his encounter with the shark, which made him consider the situation from his predator's point of view. And those same survival skills would come in handy two years after his college graduation, when another life or death situation reared its head. Next, Jonathan applies lessons learned from the shark attack to a terrifying encounter on land. Now back to our story. At 16 years old, Jonathan Catherine escaped the deadly jaws of a great white shark and made a harrowing journey back to shore. After hours of painful operations, he put himself on the road to physical and spiritual recovery a process that included learning as much as possible about sharks and dedicating himself to their preservation. Through that education, he found that he was able to overcome his remaining fears about the ocean and surfing. It was the year 2000, two years after his attack. 
Jonathan was with his brothers, Michael and Eric, and a friend at Rodeo Beach. The waves were gorgeous. The same giant, cresting, tubular waves he had gone out to chase years before on that August day. Jonathan was hesitant at first. He stuck to the shallow water, where he felt safe, where he knew he could get back to dry land in a few quick steps. But eventually, his brothers convinced him to dive in. All three Catherine brothers paddled out into the Pacific Ocean waters toward a massive wave. As it rose up, the old instincts kicked back in. Jonathan climbed atop his board and found himself riding just like he used to, with confidence, joy, and focus. He was just another of the many creatures in the ocean that day, and his experience with the shark, terrifying as it had been, made him more able to appreciate being a part of that web of life. A few months later, Jonathan started college at UC Berkeley. He enrolled in classes on ocean biology, sharks, and more, while majoring in American studies. His choice of major hinted at the kinds of careers he was considering. Learning about American society, history, literature, and more, he began to prepare himself for a life of public service within the political system. While at school, he made a name for himself giving lectures about his experience with the shark, tying in what he had learned about the species in the years since. He found that students became more invested in the material when they discovered his real-life connection to it. After graduation in 2004, Jonathan started a nonprofit aimed at spreading conflict resolution strategies. But his own conflict resolution strategies and his expanded ideas of empathy were put to the test one morning in 2006. It was the Monday after Thanksgiving. The 5 a.m. shift at the Pete's Coffee was quiet as usual. Jonathan worked the register, but there wasn't much to do. The morning rush hadn't yet started. Then he heard a voice from upstairs. He assumed at first that it must be the morning manager, but before he knew it, he was face to face with two armed gunmen there to rob the store. Immediately, his conflict resolution strategies kicked in. Rather than react with fear, Jonathan tried to view the situation from their perspective. He thought they were probably in dire straits, in need of money for rent, perhaps, or for presents for the upcoming holiday. Whatever the case, he knew that he should treat them just like he would any customer, politely, calmly, and with kindness. He found that, when he was professional with the robbers, they returned the attitude in kind. Though they did rob the store, they did so without incident. Nobody was harmed, and they were as friendly as could be, circumstances notwithstanding. Once again, Jonathan's instincts led him in exactly the right direction. Experts advise that the best course of action during an armed robbery is to remain calm, speak confidently and only when spoken to, and to acquiesce to the robber's demands. It's never worth risking a life over money. Panicked people tend to make others panic, and being calm like Jonathan was, encourages everyone, robbers included, to be calm. 
That incident was obviously scary, and about as far from a shark attack as you could imagine. But it was illustrative of the way that Jonathan's entire life changed after his encounter with the Great White. He recognized the value in his life, having been shown its centimeter-thin separation from death. It encouraged him to be more open and empathetic to others, and it taught him that understanding why people and animals do harmful things can go a long way toward prevention. Such a positive attitude meant that he could now address his one remaining fear, getting back on a surfboard. Jonathan tried to keep his experience from becoming yet another horror story in the annals of shark mythology. He learned about the overfishing of sharks following the book and movie of Jaws, and he was impressed by Jaws author Peter Benchley's effort to make up for the damage he'd done. Benchley's follow-up to Jaws was a book called Shark Trouble, which aimed to correct the record about shark attacks and inform readers about the species. In that vein, Jonathan has spent his adult life giving lectures about his experience and what he learned from it, while also teaching people about sharks. He now works as a political consultant in Northern California. He focuses on coastal issues, environmental conservation, and clean energy. He hopes to make the oceans safer, cleaner places for all the animals that live there, even the great white that attacked him. Jonathan's efforts to preserve ocean life are urgently necessary. Great whites are currently classified as a vulnerable species by the World Wildlife Foundation. They're not yet endangered, but they risk attaining that status if current hunting rates continue. And with the fearsome reputation they've achieved, sharks will have trouble getting much sympathy from the general public without campaigns like Jonathan's informing people of their importance to local ecology. Jonathan's attack shows both sides of a high-pressure survival scenario. There's the fear and action that comes in the moment itself. His attempts to wrestle off the sharks certainly wouldn't have benefited from radical empathy in that moment. But after the encounter ended, when he had made it back to shore, Jonathan showed the flip side to that, understanding he considered what the shark's perspective on the whole incident might have been, that it didn't act maliciously, but in fact, perfectly naturally. While Jonathan's survival in the moment came down mostly to luck, his transformation following the attack was anything but. He used his brush with death to embrace the things that matter about his life, his family, his education, his outlook on the world. Still, Empathy will take you only so far when you're face-to-face -face with the Great White itself. Luckily, there are many precautions one can take to avoid shark encounters. On the most basic level, one can avoid swimming altogether, or more practically, stay away from known shark spots. According to shark expert Richard Pierce, this includes the mouths of rivers and estuaries, where sharks tend to lie in wait, waiting for prey to come through. If you've decided to go swimming in an open body of water, the time of day can affect your likelihood of being attacked. Pierce says that early mornings and dusk are especially dangerous periods, as visibility is reduced and a shark is more likely to attack. 
And even if someone finds themselves face to face with a shark, there are ways to minimize the risk. The most basic of these is simply not to panic. As difficult as it may be, avoid thrashing around, turning tail and fleeing, and other basic flight responses. Maintaining eye contact can tell a shark that you're aware of its presence while you slowly back away, moving as little as possible. In the case of an actual attack, the best advice is the method Jonathan Catherine followed, fight back. Whether that's attacking the gills, the nose, the eyes, whatever you can reach, as long as you're safely avoiding the teeth. These tips may be the difference between life or death in a showdown with a great white shark. But as Jonathan learned in the months and years following his attack, these encounters, rare as they are, are an important part of living on this planet. Whether you love or hate sharks, they are a key ingredient in the ocean's magnificent ecosystem. Thanks for listening to Survival. For more information on Jonathan Catherine's experience, amongst the many sources we used, we found his book, Surviving the Shark, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Survival and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Survival, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Survival on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Joel Stein. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Survival is written by Thomas Dolan Gavitt and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson.